today's guest is Sandy Barsky. He's the Executive Program Director for Government and Education at Oracle. Sandy is also a prolific volunteer with ACT-IAC, a Partnership for Public Service, and ATARC. If you don't know those organizations, there'll be links uh, in the description for this episode. And also, he retired last year from government service after almost 40 years working at uh, GSA, which is just an amazing story. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Sandy. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. And I'm fortunate that during that time in government service, I got to know you. So thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> so for those who haven't met you and gotten to know you, talk a bit about uh, your background. Like, where are you from, who you are, and what you do? Well, I'm a Washingtonian, so I, I didn't go far, though I did go all the way across the country to go to university. So that's a little bit of background. Um, I, I do like this area. I, I grew up in an environment where government service, federal service, military service was something that we all looked to do. Mm. Now, I did not serve in the military. However, almost everyone in my family has or, or some other uh, form of government service. So, so how did you choose a school that took you all the way across the United States? Uh, independence. Uh, you can't, in those days, just call home or go home to do your laundry, get a meal or anything. So you truly had to be independent if, if you just went 3,000, some odd hundred miles away. So then... Was it a program? Did the program help? I mean, was there a specific program you're looking for? No, I, I, I was looking to, to um, not so much the program. I, I was looking for a place that would be open and welcoming to me. Mm. And of course, it matters what you can afford. Sure. And so um, th there were a few schools uh, all on the West Coast that after I took my SATs all sent me, you know, letters like, do you want to come here? And I figured out which one was most affordable in ways of grants and scholarships. And that's where I ended up. So now was, what, what, I mean, what was that um, degree program in? What did you, did it, and did it translate into government service? Uh, yes, it did. And, and uh, it was, uh, I have a, um, a bachelor's of art in business. Hmm. Uh, I emphasize that not in science. Um, and it did translate in that uh, one of my mentors in the school uh, spoke to me about different uh, um, different paths I could take, what it would be like in industry, government service, and the such. And so through speaking uh, with Dr. Barr, uh, I arrived at the government might not be bad. However, um, in knowing my family and their history, it made sense. It wasn't my first choice though. I went into industry and I found that in industry where I was at, um, I kept on trying to change the supply chain for the company I was working for. And the person whom I worked under said, great ideas, this is really terrific. But in our company, you're not supposed to be doing that until you've been here 20 years. <laughs> so I, I then chose to do what, uh, Professor Barr had suggested, and went to OPM, took the exam, um, got um, a position at GSA, and here I am. Wow. And so so what did that journey look like? I mean, I, since it, it was a number of years, I'm, I'm sure you didn't come right in at the top of your game, senior leader in GSA, right? You had a transition, you had to <laughs> figure out that path. What, what was that path for you through, through that um, uh, job? 
Well, well, thanks, Jeremy. So you didn't think I came in right at the top. All right. Well, not everybody does. <laughs> and fortunate for me, I didn't. Um, I, I actually was able to come in at a, a very low GSL level. And, and it's fortunate I, I was a clerk typist. Wow. Um, but you learn and you start to, you've learned a lot in university and throughout life but what you don't have is experience. And so you start to gain experience and you get experience at every level doing many different jobs in different roles. That was incredibly valuable. Hmm. And how did that, what was that journey like for you to where you ended at? I mean, how, how did you, what kind of decisions did you have to make? Did you have to change uh, sections of the, of the agency or different roles? Were, were they all the same role? I mean, they weren't all clerk typists, but how did that work in terms of how you navigated to where you ended up? Well, um, often it's just to get in. Mm -hmm. and that's the most important thing. No one pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps. So it's very important to have someone be open and, and generous enough to let you in. Then you can prove yourself. That's why I don't really think, and I hope I don't insult anyone, that it really matters which university you went to. It matters how you applied yourself where you were, where you had that opportunities. Um, so once I was in the General Services Administration, I immediately started to apply for other roles and specifically the um, uh, training role in the newly established CIO shop. And so I, I applied for a role. I had programmed in basic and um, maybe it was Fortran and basic in college, but now I had an opportunity to learn COBOL hmm. and to uh, become a developer in the CIO shop. Oh, wow. Uh, I have not met very many people who, who, are, who are doing COBOL. So that's, that's a new one for me. I started after COBOL. Um, and, then how, and then at that point, then did you work your way up through the management chain over time? Um, how did that look? Yeah, my name is Sandy, but they called me Mikey because uh, Sandy try it, and if he likes it, you know, it, it's an old commercial. I'm I'm dating myself, but the key thing was uh, when we were moving uh, from um, the teletype machines onto the CRTs, there was the possibility of doing screen design. So I was handed a book on screen design and, and layout and the psychology of it, and then I was able to use a facility and the Unisys uh, systems that we were uh, working on to map out a screen and, and to start to do graphical work. And so it was always an opportunity. There was always an opportunity. And if you, you looked at it, you, you can make something of that, but people had to often uh, afford you the opportunity. And one thing i like to talk to you about in, in a little bit on that journey is, is what do you do that with that next? Mm. So, so after you, you got into the COBOL programming, I'm, uh, what was next for you after that? Since you did say you kind of tried a bunch of different things. Well, uh, yeah, well, it was fun. Those days were fun. Uh, we did live on the bleeding edge. Um, uh, I brought in optical uh, storage devices and would spend hours doing it wrong, but learning from that how, how better to do it moving away from uh, microfish, all these things that people are probably scratching their heads saying, what what was all that? I mean, when I started, the floppies were eight inch. <laughs> they, yep. Yeah, they, they probably 
they probably had just uh, a few kilobytes on them at that. Um, but where, where it went to more rapidly, where it brought me to it is that I got to interface and work with people in DOD and elsewhere. And they had some really great ideas and notions. And I brought this back to the GSA and that opened uh, up for uh, building a system that, that you would call it cloud but for vendors. So we mm -hmm. built our, what, what later would be termed a cloud system based on all the architecture. You and I are both architects. We, yep. we totally understand it. I'm not gonna explain it here on this call. And believe it or not, that system went live in 2004. It's still running, uh, but <laughs> which worries me. But um, no, it, it was good and a lot of great people worked on it. But from there, that, being seeing what I had done there and, and, and working with real geniuses around me, I mean, real geniuses, so that I could um, own the decisions, but listen to those folks who, who worked uh, for me on my teams. Um, I was offered a role as enterprise architect. I fully embraced that, really enjoyed it. And then I got offered a role as cloud architect, which goes back again from understanding and knowing and having built something. And believe it or not, that lead, led into um, shared services and went into category management, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with shared services, but was interesting to start. Um, and eventually our artificial intelligence is where I ended up uh, over at, I still worked for the General Services Administration, but I ended up embedded at the VA in the National Artificial Intelligence Institute. Wow. So uh, along that journey, you and I talked a little bit before we started um, the recording, you, you mentioned that along that way, you sometimes had to come up with your own projects. Talk, talk a bit about what that means and wh why that's important. <laughs> well, I can tell you a really funny story. The person who was basically our CTO at the time, um, was asking me to do something. And I, I was a little hesitant about doing it. And actually this was an early cloud cloud uh, uh, study. We were looking at uh, universal um, uh, buses. And, um, and uh, he, he said, wait a minute, you have all the best projects. What are you balking at this one for? And I looked at him and I said, do you know why I have the best projects? And of course, why? Well, because I created all of them. <laughs> so literally, uh, I created all of them. I had great leadership. L look at that. It, it's all about leadership. You are a leader. You have been a leader in government. Your ability to recognize those people who work for you. And again, as I said, nobody pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps, but you recognize what they were bringing and gave them the opportunity and allowed them to fail. And so, yes, I had three of the best projects going underneath my, my uh, management because they were all things that my leaders enabled me to do. Mm, that's really important. Well, throughout your varied career, and uh, what, what's something you've noticed that if we came to you, Sandy, and said, hey, today, Sandy, you get to make a decision that we're going to change something, or at least you know, study it and make, make a decision around, or should we change something? What's something you've witnessed that we really should rethink how we do it? It, it would probably be in the, along the lines of sharing information and moving into 
For instance, we talked about the ACT-IAC organization and the ATARC organization. Those organizations are talking to each other about a national use case and solutions library. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's right there in one of the presidential letters on AI asking for sharing of, of the use cases. Now, the interesting thing is how you do it and doing it correctly, but that's one place where we need to do it. When I worked in shared services, how are you as a shared service management office going to know what the demand sig signals are of your customers, the agencies, unless you could get a sense of their use cases but at the same time, you need to know what the solutions are that already exist mm -hmm. so that you're not going to build another solution, another redundant, another redundant solution. So this national use case and solution library concept works on many levels, and I'm not giving it justice here in this brief interview. And there are two brilliant people um, who you know, Neil Chaudhry mm -hmm. at GSA, Jackie French, at KPMG, who wrote a terrific paper with others on why the National Use Case and Solution Library. And they are talking to people who want to listen and understand why the National Use Case and Solution Library. Now, having said that over and over, they call it the NUSL. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I would say that, that, that's what we need. Because once you start to have that, you're sharing information, you can control how you share the information. So that's something that shouldn't be shared or that someone doesn't want to share it isn't shared. Hmm. You and I know how to do that. Many developers do. So that would be my answer for you. Yeah, better communication. I, I, I'm with you, right? I've been in government, uh, not, not nearly as long as you were, but long enough to know that we aren't always great at communication and finding new tools, uh, such as Nussels, to share that information. Um, it's why I'm passionate about ACT-IAC myself, um, because we find ways to get government agencies to talk together. So, so what's next for you? I know, I know you recently transitioned and you're working at Oracle, so I'm not saying you're gonna leave Oracle, but what, what do you see on the horizon for things that you're getting excited about? Well, I'm gonna put, or I'm not gonna talk about Oracle right now, but um, yeah, I know that you, you noted that I have guitars in the back and I probably have more guitars than I can play at one time, in fact, yes. Uh, and each one of them does sound different, which is important. Uh, so for me, something that maybe we can talk about in the future is music. And the, the, what you cannot see is on the other side of these screens is an indoor bicycle. Getting out <laughs> of the house onto a, a bicycle and riding safely once the um, purple line is complete and I can go back to safely riding you know, distances. Those are some of the things that I would like to do. There's always, always, uh, God willing, COVID going away or at least being under control of traveling again and doing it safely. I don't know, Jeremy, it's such a good question, but the world is like an oyster and it can't be just one thing. And, and by the way, I keep kosher, so I don't eat oysters, but the concept <laughs> it, it really works well for me. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, you are you are somebody who likes to get involved in a lot of things. So I, I'm always looking forward to, to talking to you, hearing what you're currently involved in, and then seeing what's next for you. So thanks for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Jeremy. <laughs>